welcome to the Good Time Sports Club. I'm OJ Borge. Hello, Raya. How are you? Hello, OJ Borge. I'm all right, my friend. How are you? Uh, lockdown in tier three, ready to headbutt or lick every wall that's close to me. Very excited about that fact, I have to say. Uh, Very is excited. this so you can get sick or <laughs> just don't. to handle your frustration? I don't know. I just need an outlet and I think licking walls is going to be my only way to do it. Um, I always ask you how your sporting week was. I know you had a bad back. Is your bad back better? Bad back is much better, but sporting week um, has not improved um, because of our lovely COVID situation. My nice holiday slash work trip to do Ironman Turkey has had to be canned because we can't do the um, travel isolation when we get back from Turkey. So that's out the window. And so I have taken a very well-deserved almost eight days off of doing absolutely anything and now I feel like a fat slob. <laughs> well, how do you feel mentally? Because I am, I am not an athlete. I've never been a pro athlete like you, but I am fairly obsessed about making sure, I think I think mentally I need to ride, I need to work out, mainly because I eat too much stuff at night as well, but mentally <laughs> I have to do it. So how are you mentally after eight days off? I know you say you feel like a fat slob, but do you feel mentally like you've been caged? Um... Well, that's normally part of my ADHD, buddy, <laughs> rather than my my sporting background. Um, there's some of me that starts to get itchy feet, but there's other bits of sort of my mentality, which is as a coach, we had to work so hard to keep the team together, where a lot of teams were mothballed um, and we worked tirelessly to keep ourselves fit, to keep our team motivated. And actually now that the last race has gone of 2020 for almost all of our athletes, um, I actually needed like a mental deload as well as a physical deload. Um, also to have enough energy to help with my athletes who are feeling exactly the same, get through the barrier um, into next year. So weirdly, the reason why I'm getting itchy feet is because I'm feeling like a fat slob as opposed to the rest. Um, um, so it, yeah, it's kind of a um, um, good for the mind and soul as well as the body to rest. What about you, buddy? I think I saw that you might have been doing some e-racing. I did. I uh, part of this new Zwift, uh, uh, what's it? Community races. That's what I've been doing. And um, we had a team. Yeah. And on the first one, it was like a solo. It was a points of scratch race. That was last week. Did all right. I managed to get our team up to. F- Third, I think I scored all the points. I came like, and on a hilly course, I did all right. Yes, and then, um, and then last night or Tuesday night, it was a uh, it was a team time trial, which was great. We had Doctor Hutch, who is the cyclist. He's written a ton of books. Michael Hutchinson. He's attempted the out yeah. record amongst other things. He was our celebrity DS, and he was brilliant. Even <laughs> though I think we came second last, but that was to do. With, I did at one point. So the team, obviously across the entire C category, there was a lot of D's in our team. We had five of us. Do you know how long a turn I did? We were supposed to do in one minute turns. Guess how long a turn I did? Go on. 12 minutes. Oh. <laughs> 12 minutes. Good work, my friend. I know, good I know. Work. I enjoyed it. It was good. At least it got me a sweat on. But yeah, that was my week. Anyway, let's drift beautifully into the news this week, the sporting news. And we start with the Premier League. As everything in this country, in the UK, starts with the Premier League. They've refused to reveal how many people have paid for their controversial £15 per pay per view games. The move has been called opportunistic and greedy by fans, with many choosing to give their money to charities instead, which I think is brilliant. And I think it was... Was it, Mark, was it the Newcastle fans 
who did it. It was the Newcastle fans, wasn't it? So instead of paying £15, they gave it to a food bank, which I think is brilliant. And don't get me wrong, soccer, whatever you want to call it, whichever part of the world you're in, football, they have to earn money. Of course they do. They're businesses. But at the same time, all of them have run out of a loss for so long. And it made me angry that when money got tight, it was the cleaners and the people on minimum wage and the people Mm. who worked in the ground that got binned off first rather than people on £350,000 a week. And the dinosaur. And the, and the dinosaur, who was saved by the guy <laughs> who's like the highest paid football in the UK. Well done, Mesut Oza. If you're going to talk about PR, that's a good way to PR your wages because he's just, for what, less than a tenth of his weekly wage has just bought himself a ton of great PR. Exactly. Um, in, interestingly, my slight, I totally agree with you, OJ. I, the, the fact that it is the, the, the diehard fans who are also struggling at this difficult time are getting, um, you know, are getting the bare brunt of this. But I have um, a really good friend who works for a very big broadcasting company who was talking about the losses that the, you know, sporting tv rights have caused throughout the whole broadcasting television radio etc 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 has done to the sport and i'm not saying that that means we have to take it out on season ticket holders who might have seen those games um, instead but um it's it's an interesting time for the economics of sport especially in the likes of football when they're so used to earning so much money that they haven't really had to budget or finance well um, they, they haven't budgeted or financed for years i mean you look at well, something exactly. like manchester manchester united which is i don't know if it's still the richest club in the world or the biggest club in the world it's definitely up there um yeah. they they released their financial figures which showed the amount of money they've taken a hit on this year now i didn't look deep into it all i saw was that the glazer family that owned it and they bought it mm-hmm. by leveraging debt against it. It was a real shady business deal. Legal, but yeah, you know, not that legal things were ever not shady. Um, they leveraged the deal. They still took £23 million out of the business this year, even <laughs> in a year. You know, you just think I, I, capitalism is capitalism. You know what it is. But the problem is failure comes with success. And if you don't plan mm-hmm. for the future, otherwise what you're talking about there is socialism. I said I wasn't going to rant about stuff. I said I wasn't going to rant about it. So I'm going to stop ranting about it. <laughs> exactly. Um, speaking about planning for the future, though, Nico Rosberg has followed in the wheel tracks of his former teammate and rival Lewis Hamilton by announcing a team in the brand new Extreme E Championship. The all-electric off-road championship aims to raise awareness for environmental issues and promote green technology. Is that a good news story for us? That is a good news story, yeah. yeah. I, th- I, I do think so, yeah. Um, I think the whole push towards electric, I mean, you've got to take something out of what the pandemic's doing. I think a push towards greener future is good and I think if people who have a lot of money, Nico Rosberg Rosberg is obviously a very rich and successful sportsman, so is Lewis Hamilton, good for them for investing in something which isn't just burning more fossil fuels. It's also incredibly good um, as it's got I think each team has to have a female driver and bearing in mind there aren't that many top level driving drives open to top level female drivers that's really good mm. and it's also completely carbon neutral so good go. big tick well done the yes. extreme e championship so what are they racing around in then what are they racing around in they're like big uh, like buggies sort of thing they're sort of a bit more of an oversized jeep and the idea is they go to places that are threatened by environmental 
sort of climate change. So they're going to the Antarctic, they're going to the Amazon jungle, and they've got these purpose-built tracks. They're like pop up. <laughs> Is this where we find out they they do something to? How much like, did it cost to build yeah, these exactly. tracks? How much it cost to build it? They actually they actually levelled an entire country's worth of logs to get rid of it. It's where you always find out they flew nineteen planes to the Antarctic at a massive carbon cost. Unlike yeah. um, last week's um, sort of, or last time we were talking about the uh, Formula One track they were building in Rio by flattening a rainforest, the idea is to do the very opposite. So it's like leave as little trace as possible and then um, put some money back into some local projects and then sod off. Whether it actually works out that way, we'll yeah. see. But yeah, so far our intention's so good. Uh, let's have an MMA story, which MMA has been, bizarrely considering how close they get to each other, it's been one of those sports that has endured through the, um, through the lockdown, possibly because of just sheer belligerence. But yeah, uh, Khabib Nurmagomedov, who is possibly the biggest fighter on the planet at the moment, his fight with Conor McGregor, the richest MMA fight of all time. And I was there, and I watched the chaos afterwards. Uh, anyway, he's set for the biggest fight on UFC's Fight Island so far when he defends his UFC lightweight title against Justin Gaethje, um, which is this weekend, I believe. And it's one of those fights that's been talked about for ages and is going to be great if you like MMA, because I think it's just going to be a grind fest. Mm. Which I'm sure you love, Raya. Big fan of a <laughs> grind fest, aren't you? Funny enough, I when I saw this news piece, I, I've i missed the UFC. I used to follow it quite religiously for uh, quite some time. I haven't watched what, it for ages. wearing a cassock? Ne- Is that religiously like wearing a cassock and yeah, taking definitely. the blood of Christ? <laughs> Um, well, that's how much I liked it at the time, but it's been a long time since I watched it. And something like this is probably, you know, the thing to get me back into it. Yeah, looking forward to it. I think we should talk about this definitely next week, the fight, because I think it'll be good. In fact, maybe even looking into some of the fights that have happened on Fight Island in the background to it. Uh, right. Mm. Let's do a top 10. Uh, this week, our top 10 is all on sporting injustice. Mark, why are we doing sporting injustice? We've got one of the greatest moments of sporting injustice that may be uh, avenged this weekend. Um, if you follow the NFL in any way, you may remember a game so famous it's just known by three words. Mm-hmm. Tuck, rule, game. It is Tom Brady <laughs> and... Laces uh, out! Laces out! <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we did consider that, but no. Uh, the, um, it's the moment where Tom Brady started the dynasty long before Tom Brady was a six-time NFL Super Bowl champion. Uh, he had a game in the snow, and basically, the ball, he's going to throw the ball, and it's ripped out of his hands. It's a fumble. The Raiders pick it up. It looks for all the world like they're going to win the game. However... This little known rule comes out of the offing where apparently if you look like you're going to throw the ball, even if you decide, no, actually, I don't fancy doing that and pull it back to yourself, it counts as attempting a pass. So despite the fact that he was holding onto the ball and he dropped it, Patriots keep the ball, kick a field goal, win the game, go on to win the Super Bowl, Dynasty is born. Now, the man who you don't hear that much about on this side of the Atlantic is a guy called John Gruden. He was the head coach of the Oakland Raiders. Uh, How can you describe him? He's a bit like if you mixed Ian Holloway and Jose Mourinho into one. He's this sort of lunatic, uh, mercurial genius. Um, And basically he's been out of the game doing media for a little while. He's come back to the Raiders and this is the first time he's had a chance to get revenge either against the Patriots or Brady. And he is furiously angry and determined to get this win. And it could be one of the greatest games you'll ever see. So 
that's why we're doing it this week. That was the first one on the list. Um, where do you want me to go next? There's loads of different games we can look into or events. Uh, okay, I tell you what. Let's go. Oh, let's go. Let's go. We've talked about soccer uh, because it is a massive sport. Let's talk about soccer and the fact that there was a handball in 2010. Now, I don't watch a lot of international football. I just don't. I don't lo- lo- watch a lot of football anyway. Um, talk to me about the Republic of Ireland looking to beat France because this came up. Why did this come up? I was listening to a podcast. I listened to a podcast that Thierry Henry was on and he was talking about this. So talk me through it, Mark. Okay, so I don't know if you, uh, you've ever heard this story, Ray, but for anyone that doesn't know, back in 2010, France were, they were almost at their peak. They'd, they'd, they'd kind of won the World Cup in the Euros in, in the early 2000s, late 98, early 2000, they were, they were the team to beat. They had a little dip in form, and then they, they looked like they were going to be one of the superpowers coming into the 2010 World Cup. Had a difficult qualifying campaign, finished second in their group, then they had to go through the playoffs. Facing off against an Ireland team, you know, Ireland are a small country, not expected to be, you know, a success necessarily. They'd done extremely well to get second in their qualifying group. They were on the way to a um, their fourth World Cup appearance ever, ever. And despite losing the first leg, 1-0 at home, they'd done everything they needed to do in Paris. They were 1-0 up. The game was heading to extra time. Uh, well, the game was in extra time, I should say. They'd looked, they'd looked decent in it. The ball comes over the top. Thierry Henry, who at that time had a reputation of being quite a nice guy and well-respected, inexplicably reached out a hand, grabbed the ball, slapped it to his toes, knocks it across the box to, of all people, William Gallas, who just slotted it in and basically knocked Ireland out of the World Cup before it even started. And there were protests. there, I think they had a million people in Dublin protesting about this to get them get them a place at the World Cup. A million uh, people. Seth wow. Latter was petitioned to allow a 33rd team into the World Cup. Uh, it was a huge moment. And basically what I'm asking you to do is judge these events on on how unjust they are, how, how much pain is caused by the by this moment of of dodginess. It was a massive it was a massive amount. Now I see, I see this quite a lot. Now, you, you see people talking about going, the reason they brought VAR in, which is the way they work out um, how, if somebody has been offside or the rest of it, it was a way of trying to make things fairer. The problem is sport is inherently unfair. Unfair mm. things happen all the time. Whether you have cheated or not, whether you, whether you have gamed the system, whether you're unlucky, unfair thing happens. But the problem is because the unfair things happens, it generates so much talking point and so much more interest in the sport. In some ways, something unfair happening is almost a bigger draw for people than something fair happening. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it's what it is. So, yeah, it was an absolute travesty. But it's... It just makes people interested. It drives phone-ins. It gets people more interested in the team. Good stuff comes out of bad. So I'm going to say, what are we rating out of 10? And it's unfairness, 9. Solid 9, unfair. But also it's French, which takes two points off. So Because you'd expect (laughs) it from Thierry Henry. So I'm going to say 7. This is this is France went beating Ireland, right? So yeah. it for for Ireland to be beat by um, a handball, which you know, I'm not a massive football supporter. <laughs> you're not or a watcher, massive football. <laughs> I'm a football supporter and watcher. But I'm pretty sure you're not allowed to use your hands in the sport. So to have something so sort of in your face um, cause such a, an injustice is, is is pretty big. What are you giving it? What are you giving it? Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Okay. Do you know who Maradona is? Yes. 
Okay, do you know what happened in 1986 with the hand of God? He played for Argentina. No, I do not. Okay, so Maradona, arguably the best player of all time. Outrageously skilled. um, Slightly... How would you describe his lifestyle, Mark? Would you describe his uh, lifestyle as excessive? Excessive. So I was going to say slightly ne- damaged as a person. and gambling and yeah, God, he was off his face at the USA <laughs> World Cup. Yeah, drugs, the rest of it. But there was a lot of pressure on him. He could go nowhere. When he played in Italy, he could go nowhere. He was the most famous man there. You know, the, the right. pressure on him. Every team he played for, he made better. He was prodigiously talented. And in 1986, he scored an amazing goal, a brilliant goal against England. This was against England, and then. He somehow outjumped. Was it the way around? Did he? Was it hand of God first? Okay. So he outjumped Peter Shilton, and mm-hmm. he put his hand above his head and he punched the ball over Peter Shilton and scored the goal. And the linesman didn't see it. How somebody who is famously quite short? What's Maradona? Five six, five seven? He's not tall, is he? Yeah. He's not tall. How could outjump big Peter Shilton? I, nobody really knows. So he did that. Uh, of course, there was no replays and the goal stood. He then. He then scored one of the best goals ever in World Cup history. So, it's how unfair was it to England, Raya? Ooh. Because well, this, this was the original handball. Well, again, it's a game that is not supposed to use your hands. And if you've purposefully reached up to use your hands when a header just won't do over a player that's taller than you, regardless of what country you're competing for. Pretty unfair, I would say. Sounds like it uh, caused a bit of an upset. <laughs> um, <laughs> was it that same game that he, he scored this most incredible goal of all time? Oh yeah, it was, it was minutes later. Does that make, make it up to England fans? Probably not. No, but Gary Lineker, who was on the pitch at the time, talks about it. And he says, you know, it's sort of the agony and the ecstasy of football. You watch what Maradona does and he does that. He called it the hand of God. When he punched it over the head, he said, it wasn't my hand, it was the hand of God. (laughs) The thing was, at the time, there's so much involved in this. It's like one of the great moments of like where sport, uh, sport and politics intersect. So at the time, like... Britain and Argentina were having some really complex political issues over the Falklands Mm -hmm. and there was this big tension going into it. And so it was always almost inevitable that something was going to happen, something was going to give. And it just so happened that he did something that was patently illegal. And then to throw fuel on the fire, I just thought, you know, they're not going to ban me. I'm the greatest player in the world. So I'm just going to rub it in. I'm just going to rub it in even further and say it was the hand of God. You can just see like the little devil in him as he goes up the um, uh, Raya, have you ever been the subject of a sporting injustice? Not off the top of my head. I, I'd like to say, say I play safe and play clean. Uh, so there's nothing that... But of course, as a skier, you throw yourself down a mountain and nine times out of ten you hope to just survive and rather than win. So there's lots of... lots of. In, I mean, breaking my back felt pretty unjust at the time. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Why? <laughs> but um, but you know, it, it is what we signed up for. Um, you know, so why, yeah. Why I mean, do people cheat? Unjust. Why do people cheat? What sort of person cheats? Is it an inherently dishonest person, or is it somebody who's honest who just can't take losing? What is? What sort of person cheats? I, I actually think that 
when you are a certain type of person and it is a certain type of character who needs to compete, who needs to have that level of um, ability um, and be the best, that clouds, I believe, I feel that that can sometimes cloud your judgment and good people can often do things that they might not necessarily do in a sport in a sporting environment. I guess actually that might be applied in in life in general. But, um, but is that not is that not Raya? Is that not the epitome of being a winner, doing everything what, that it takes? Cheating? Not by cheating, but by gaming the system. I mean, there is a fi- there's a fine line in every sport between being by by gamesmanship, by how you play the game. Some of the best teams push. I mean, it's not necessarily that you break the rules, but you push the rules all the way to breaking. Well, and that's what makes sport often so progressive, right? Is that we we push the boundaries of what our bodies are capable of. We push the boundaries of what rules used to be, and then the and then the rules change, or the sports change, um, or the targets change, or the way play changes. So potentially it is part of the sport. However, when you tarnish your reputation by cheating, it changes the way you are perceived as an athlete. Is your success to the greater public perceived as a class act? There's, you know, you can you can compare even footballers who have been classified as the best in the world and those who push the boundaries of the cheating might disrupt the game and might have changed things ultimately for the different but the player who had that same talent but did it with finesse and class often sort of remains in our sort of our our good graces and and we remember those athletes so i think very very philosophical but but Mm. relevant yeah i guess it's the it's the line between it's the line between being a competitor and being a cheat Mm. Well, someone that trod that line very, very closely throughout his career was Michael Schumacher. And I could have come up with two different examples. I could have come up with several different examples of this. But probably the most famous example of Michael Can Schumacher I guess? treading that fine Can line. Can I guess? Is it where he yes. drove into Damon Hill and broke Damon Hill's suspension? It is, exactly. Mm. So it's 1994, Adelaide title decider. 1994 is probably the most tumultuous F1 season ever, the year we lost Senna and Ratzenberger. Every, there's a lot riding on this race to basically crown the next superstar. Michael Schumacher was young, he was upcoming, he was exciting. And he looked to have it all done. He was pulling away from Damon Hill and then he makes an inexplicable mistake, cr- drives off the road, hits the wall. Um, unknown to Damon Hill, he's actually damaged his suspension. It's a chicane, so he's gone off on the right-hand side. He peels back onto the racing line. Damon Hill's got the momentum, comes past him, looks like he's going to take the lead, and then Michael Schumacher just goes, you know what, I'm not going to make it around this corner, neither are you, and turns in, no attempt to make the corner, flies through the air quite dramatically, ends up at the side of the road, and you see the the famous line from Murray Walker is, and all Damon Hill's got to do is get to the finish line, and he pulls into the pits with a broken suspension, championship's over, there was a lot of complaints about should they have taken the title away from him, in the end, they decide maybe it's a good idea to have this new up-and-coming superstar rather than a slightly ageing guy, you know, take which, which, which is unfair. Now, you see, before you tell me the sporting injustice here, here's, here's a question I want you to both answer. So, if 
if Michael, so Michael Schumacher illuminated, illuminated Formula One, love him or hate him, for me he was a bit of a pantomime baddie, I was always against Michael Schumacher, but I realised afterwards how great a driver he was, and he made me watch Formula One. I didn't like him, True. and I didn't like the way he raced, but I watched Formula One. If Michael Schumacher wasn't the sort of driver to turn into his opponent, to put him out in that moment, whether he claimed it was, it was, un it was accidental or not, wouldn't be the Michael Schumacher that illuminated Formula One for me for a decade. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, is that sort of flawed, win-at-all-cost character, is it essential to great sport and great sport in drama, Raya? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely do. Love them or hate them, it's exactly, you, you've hit the nail on the head. You, you can, it means that in, in, a, in the pursuit of of victory in the pursuit of glory people will will stop at nothing and that desire to be that good makes us either love them or hate them but what it does is it still draws us in and as much as that infuriates people that is what sport is actually about you know the, the athletes do it because it's their love and passion but ultimately in today's world it's about tv rights and getting mm. people seen and, and and building the story or the ethos or the the the, the background in the sport um, um, yeah, if you don't have both of those things, sport actually becomes a bit boring. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I for a long time, was called a bad loser. And I was, I was called a bad no. loser. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, I was never a bad loser. <laughs> what, what I was, I'm not, how dare you? I was not a bad loser. <laughs> I never lost, I just sometimes hadn't finished winning when time ran out. Um, oh, I was never a bad loser. <laughs> I was never a bad loser. I was always congratulatory of a team that beat me. And I played for a lot of losing teams, whether it was basketball or hockey, whatever I played. The thing was, I would compete for the entirety of whatever the match was, I competed and I competed hard, you know, so I was never the most skillful, but I was the, I was, I was always that person who competed hard and I got given the reputation of being somebody who was a bad loser because I did everything I could to win during whatever the match was. I never cheated. I pushed, you know, don't get me wrong. I pushed everything to the, to the, to the limits, but I never cheated. But the thing was, I got tarred with a, a bad loser brush and people didn't want to play against me because they thought it was a bad loser because I, I tried so hard to win. You've just, you've just raised something from the back of my memory that I'd completely forgotten then. When you said I was treated as a bad loser, and I was like, I didn't have that reputation. Then I had this moment of when I was playing football at probably was about nine years old. And if you've ever been in the situation, I was like you, I was never particularly talented out of a swimming pool. It was the only thing I could do well was swim. And um, I remember I was on the right wing and the other right winger was this little kid you know, he's probably about a year younger than me, but he was rapid speed fast, going past everyone. And I just kept thinking to myself, will someone tackle him? Will someone tackle him? And in the end, I just decided, you know what? If no one's gonna do it, I'll do it. And I sprinted over there at full speed, and I just decided, I'm gonna take this ball. And um, completely misjudged my talent, speed, and <laughs> skill, and basically <laughs> caught him about hip height. It was one of the worst tackles uh, that in, in anything. I've never seen anyone do a worse tackle. And I stood up, the kid was bawling his eyes out, and I've never felt so guilty. And I was playing in a league where there were no disciplinary measures, and the referee turned to the manager and said, I think it's sensible if you take him off. <laughs> like, I got substituted because my morals were that bad. Oh, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. Um, we've, we've gone off on massive tangents, which I think is good, and it's what a podcast should be. Let's do one more and then post the full top ten to the website. So give me, give us one more. Give us one more, Mark. 
Okay. Well, we just, before we do before we do that, we should really say, you know, we should give a rating to how controversial Schumacher was. Like, so, how much injustice do you feel for Damon Hill? For, for injustice at the time, ten. Looking mm. back now, like a five, because it, it was the best. <laughs> it was one of the best races I ever watched. You know, I I will have all those injustices again, just for how emotional I was. He was. He made. I. He was. He is still my my most hated driver in Formula One, but. He's also my favourite driver. As soon yeah. as he retired, I stopped watching Formula One. Yeah, and I would agree with that because, you know, the, the moment you're right... Hate is the wrong word, detested. Moment... No, I, hate's the wrong word. You know that I'm not, I'm trying not, to, I don't mean hate. I mean... You loved to hate him. Well, yeah. In sport, you hate people. You don't have to hate the person. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Once once they retire, the real person emerges and you go, oh, they're not that bad, actually. But <laughs> in 97... I was with you 100% because he, he basically did the same thing again. Williams driver, championship on the line. All he needs to do is finish and hope the other guy doesn't. And he, the same thing happens. He makes a mistake. The Williams driver, who at the time was Jack Villeneuve, gets up the inside and he goes, you know what, I'm going to take you out. And he turns in and there's another great bit of commentary. Martin Brundle says, you've hit the wrong part of his car, Michael. That's not going to work. And he bounces <laughs> off, goes into the gravel trap and stops. And he actually got disqualified from the championship Good. for that because it was so egregious. And I can remember like, yes, he's gone, he's lost. Because that was what you're saying. You hated him so much at the time. But yeah. anyway, let's move on to the last one. Um, this, you might remember this, but this is one of the most bizarre moments in all of sport. There was a guy who very briefly was one of the biggest disruptors of professional sport. Um, it wasn't Jimmy Jump, though he was on a similar scale. It was a priest, an Irish priest called Neil Horan. Uh, now, he's, his previous records up until this point, he'd run onto the track at the British Grand Prix and, and tried to disrupt the race, protesting about something or other. Um, I can't remember what else he did, he'd done something else. But his craziest moment was in the Olympic marathon in 2004. You've got this guy, Vandalai Cordelai de, de Lima, Brazilian runner, who'd made the break, I think about 18 miles into the race, so quite a considerable margin. He'd had about 20 seconds over the guys behind and was starting to pull clear. This crazy Irish priest who's wearing a kilt that can only be described as a mini skirt runs through his shot, bundles him into the crowd, and there's a bit of a tussle. Eventually, like Delima is freed, but his rhythm is broken, he can't quite get it back together. He ends up losing his lead, finishes in third place in the stadium. And to his credit, I mean he's devastated when the moment initially happens, but he comes into the, the stadium celebrating, doing all his dancing to a stand innovation from the crowds, ends up getting um, our favourite Olympic medal, the Pierre de Coutin, uh, Coubertin medal, and uh, gets a bronze as well. But it should have been gold. So in Sporting Injustices, where do you rank that one? Well, for, for me, it's an outside influence that should have never been there. So for me, it's top of the injustice table, regardless of the fact that he, as an athlete, was able to bring it back and win two amazing medals. He had the priest never done that to him. He would have, would have, should have, would have, could have, but would have won his gold. And because of an outside influence, I, I think this tops the the table at ten for me. I do as well. I think you know somebody doing it to you who is a competitor, that's one thing. Somebody who is a spectator is another thing. 
because at least they're invested in it. Somebody who's just a protester, I mean, that should just never happen. I think mm. it's terrible. 10 out of 10. I'm glad he got the Pierre de Coubertin medal for attitude, Definitely. which is a good one. Absolutely but a good one. In, I'd be interesting to know, Mark, if he's the only athlete that's ever actually medaled, but also got the Pierre de Coubertin, because that sounds amazing. I, I, it'd be it'd be interesting to know that. He's not. There was one, obviously the very first one was Lutz Long, um, <laughs> who was helping to adjust Jesse Owens' jump. But yeah, he's one of two, so pretty unique company. Very much so. I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10. In fact, he should be given all of the medals on the planet, I think, <laughs> because... <laughs> That is rubbish. Well, uh, do you know what? I started this in a bit of a funk, you know, Raya and Mark. You I started did, in the funk. You, OJ, a... but I feel like you pulled it back, my friend. Oh, it's always the way. I use all of this stuff like some form of therapy. I start everything. Sometimes I do a Radio 2 show and I even say at the start of the show, going, listen, guys, I'm in a bad mood. Let's see how we go. Then like five songs later on, I'm dancing to Belinda Carlisle. It's a, it's a great thing. I'm pretty thing. sure it's I a saw a, a, a reel that you did on Instagram and your poor producer, I think, is in the room with you, just looking, staring at a computer screen, not moving. And you're like... He's the, he's the hero. You're ducking your head in different parts of the studio. And I was like... This is the ADHD OJ I don't know if I could be in the same studio with because I would be doing the same that's thing. Why I, yeah, that's why I gave up caffeine because no one needs to be stuck in a studio with me at half two yeah, in the quite. morning completely yeah. off my well, face. Listen, I'm glad anyway. that sport and the lovely company of Mark and myself could turn your night around, OJ. You have. You've turned me around. So Thank you so much, both of you. more Parliament now, more chill than I'd be for. What? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. I'm going to have that tattooed on my eyebrows. Um, thank you so much for listening as well. As always, we love doing the Good Time Sports Club. It is a Shock Giraffe production. was produced by Mark Payne with additional support from James Watkins. Uh, thanks to everyone who's already subscribed. Damn you if you haven't already. Uh-huh. But you can always... Sorry, just to uh, put the tin hat on everything, I broke my microphone halfway through that. Thank you if you've subscribed. Damn you if you haven't, but please do subscribe. Uh, I've been OJ Borge. And I've been Raya Hubble. Until next time, OJ. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>